Are you a horror hound? Do you like scary movies? Well then Moose's Monster Mash is the podcast for you. Moose sits down each month with the local and celebrity guests to discuss the things that send chills up your spine. You can find Moose's Monster Mash at electronicmediacollective.com. Check it out before you check out. <laughs> Hi, this is Sandy Grin. I play Builder Beaver on Zoobly Zoo, and you're listening to me on Bull Spit with Moose. First try. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bulls. Okay, we need to make a couple quick adjustments here, here, and here, and you know what? Yeah, I think that's better. Away we go. Everyone up. Everyone in. Time for the fun to begin. Come along with us to... Welcome, Moose Pack, to another Zuberific episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. My guest today will lend a helping hand as we explore his career from Zoobly Zoo to Babylon 5. Please welcome Mr. Sandy Grin. Hi, everybody. <laughs> How's it going, Sandy? It's going really well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So you, you've been keeping busy? Uh, yes, I've been um, wearing masks, keeping six feet apart from people. And every time I go to a grocery store, it's an adventure. It really is. Yeah. You see a whole different side of society. Well, it's. I, I never thought that I would judge people based on if they're wearing surgical masks. But it's become rather simple. If you see people not wearing a mask, you feel like they don't care about you. Or themselves. Or the, Well, yeah, or themselves. But it, it's, I, I live in Los Angeles. It's, there's almost 11 million people that live here, and a lot of us are wearing masks, and the numbers are still high. So it's, I'm sorry, what was the question? Yeah, I'm keeping busy, staying well, and get, getting through the apocalypse. Well, I figure at some point, masks are probably going to become mandatory just long term. I the, the Our governor says it's mandatory that we have to wear them outside. In Arizona, my sister's in Arizona. She said that people are fined $50 and three hours or six hours of community service for not wearing a mask. Ooh. So, yeah, I, I'm a, I, they're not going to get my money. There'll be some clean highways. Very, very clean parks and highways <laughs> from six feet apart. <laughs> as long as they wear a mask while they're doing it, I'm okay. Be a community service chain gang. Yes, but big, long chains because you can't be within six feet of each other. All right, we got something. So you've been an actor. You know, you've been, sorry, you're an actor. You've been, you know, you're into puppeteering. What? When did you get bitten by the bug, as it were? Like how early in life? Uh, five years old. Um, actually, a, a little yeah, five. I listened to the Music Man album, my mom's Music Man album, and I memorized every word from Trouble, which a lot of people tell that same story. The first thing they learned as an actor is the Trouble speech from Music Man. Um, I went with my family to a family event in New York when I was six. And there was about 600 people at the event, and I begged to be able to get up and sing a song 
and I sang, I got up in a chair and I sang, he's got the whole world in his hands um, and loved it. Absolutely loved being on stage, loved being in front of these people and never looked back. That was all I ever wanted to do. Uh, my mom took me to see um, King and I, and I know a lot of kids would see that movie and say, why doesn't she want to live in the castle? Why does she want a house? And how come he's bald? And is that a waltz or a polka? Um, I, I don't know if kids would actually ask that. I looked at it. I saw people crying in the theater when the king was dying on the screen. And I knew how incredibly powerful um, theater is and how incredibly powerful movies are and the art form. And I wanted to be part of that. The fact that he performed something on camera and people were crying in the movie theater, I thought was amazing. And I was, I was a kid. So since then. Were you uh, involved in drama and stuff like that in high school? Well, in school and high school and always, always. Um, I started playing piano when I was five. Um, and I've been playing piano ever since. And I was in plays growing up and wrote plays, some of them horrible. And uh, I was in drama in high school. And then when I was 15, um, I was told about a place called the Renaissance Fair in, in uh, Southern California. And my friends from high school and I went there and we were a recorder group, even though none of us played recorder because it seemed like a Renaissance thing to do. And someone told us if we wore whiteface, we could stay overnight. So we became mimes <clears throat> and we fell in love with that and got better at it. And then eventually the head of the fair said mimes were illegal. Um, so we had to put words in our mime act. So we added a script to our mime bit and we became a comedy group called Cock and Feathers and performed at the fair for close to 40 years. Um, and I thought that was, I thought I had reached the apex right there at, at this fair that we did in Agora and in, in Nevada in California. Um, we were on the main stage. We had a thousand people in the audience, standing ovations. I could not imagine it getting any better than that. And in some ways I was right, but, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I guess I found out later that if you are on television, more people see you. Mimes are illegal. Well, yes, and I'll tell you why. Um, because we were 16th century, um, the Elizabethan period, and mimes were 19th century uh, French. And, uh. and this probably wouldn't have bothered Phyllis Patterson, who was the head of the fair, except for the fact that one of our very, very famous mimes at the fair was Robert Shields of Shields and Yarnell. And he really did think that he was the star of the Renaissance Fair. And in some ways, he might have been the most noted, although we had a commedia with Mark Hamill in it. And we also had uh, Roxanne Arquette. The, our, all, the whole Arquette family had a booth. Um, so we, we had famous people that were working at the fair. But Robert Shields at the time was most noted, and he refused to follow direction so he would pass the hat on the main stage which was a big no-no he wanted to have his name on top of the title of renaissance fair and one year phyllis decided between a northern fair and a southern fair 
there'll be no more mimes. So not only did she fire Robert Shields, she made mimes 200 years too early and moved them out of the century. That's what, that's what being a producer is all about. So we were very lucky that she let us stay and add words to our mime bit. And she came up to us after one of our first mime shows with words. And she said, I want you to know that you were all silent for so long. The first words that came out of your mouth, are they're golden. And, I, and we were so moved by that. And a couple of years later, when she was yelling at us because we ended up doing a wizard show, I played a bad wizard and my partner played a good wizard. And we had an assistant that we borrowed between each other. And we were always in trouble. It was dirty. It was anachronistic. And she was constantly giving us notes. And at one point after the show, I said, Phyllis, remember when you said that we were silent so long and then we finally started talking and, and it, the first words were golden? She said, yes, I did say that. And I said, well, well what happened? And she said, you kept talking. <laughs> so, we, so I had many, many lessons in, in and how to get away with and how not to get away with things because she was she was the margaret dumont of our marx brothers i don't think she knew why we were funny or why people were laughing but she knew that we loved being there and apparently she let us stay so that was that was incredible but all the all through growing up um i did theater in school theater then in college um and worked at these fairs and felt like i was already you know Top of the heap. And then eventually got union cards and got to do it. I got an after card because there was a thing called the gong show. <clears throat> and if you, they let anybody go on the gong show doing anything, by the way, I don't think that's a big surprise. And we would come up with a minute and 15 second bits to audition to be on the show. And some of them were good and some of them were horrible. And we found out after you were on the show, you get, you can get an after card if you do another one. So we got into AFTRA, my group and I, um, and then every week we were auditioning for just ridiculous, horrible things. I sold my partner on one as Mr. Bathroom, and I was absolutely certain we were going to be gonged, and it didn't matter. We got AFTRA $425 each to be on the show, um, and we had toilet paper coming out of his butt, and toothpaste came out of his mouth, and he was a mime that was a bathroom appliance and we got 30 points and they absolutely loved us. So we, I went from stage, very classy Renaissance fair stage work to very classy television work on the gong show. And then at one time someone asked me from the gong show staff, Chuck Paris productions, if I'd like to be on the dating game. Um, and I said, you know what? I think that the dating game is a sexist, archaic, form of theater that I just don't want to be a part of. And they said, you'll get $435. And I said, sign me up. So I did three dating games. It's not that archaic. <laughs> it's not that archaic. It's not that sexist. And the check cleared and it was perfect. So everyone has a price. Everyone has a price. <laughs> Mine was $435. And I loved the dating games too. That was so much fun because it was, it was an improv game where if nobody else was going to laugh, I knew Jim Lang thought I was funny. So that was that was a lot of fun. I want to double back to something you said. Okay, so you name-dropped two people. Well, a family and a person. The Arquette family. Yes. And Mark Hamill. Yes. And then you just kind of glassed over it. Let, let, let's think oh, about this for a minute. Oh, did I? Um, you, you, you worked 
at the Renaissance Fair. Yes. Uh, Mark Hamill was on a sh- in a show called Gamergren's Needle. I think that was what he was on. Um, this was early 70s, so it was well before he was in Star Wars. Um, Roseanne Arquette and Patricia Arquette and David Arquette all worked with their father, Louis Arquette, um, at a booth at the fair. Now, at the time, I didn't know that. My partner, Mr. Barrett, he said that he saw Roseanne Arquette at the Dickens Fair, where we also worked, which was, instead of Elizabethan England, it was Dickensian England. So there was a difference. We wore top hats instead of floppy hats. It was pretty much how we did it. Um, so I didn't realize that they were there, and I also didn't realize they were big fans of our show until I started taking classes at Second City. Um, my, I walked into the room, and the teacher was Louis Arquette, who is the father of... David, Patricia, and, and Roseanne. And he said, oh, my God, Sandy Grin, cock and feathers. I should be taking lessons from you. Huh. And I said, okay. Do And he said, sit down. <laughs> and, that, and that was my first Second City yes and experience. I still had to pay for it, but he told me right away that he was a, he was a fan of my work. Um, so, yeah, they were, they, were, they were regulars at the fair. Um, and we had a lot of we had a, a lot of guests show up at the fair, like you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash would be there, and Joni Mitchell would show up a lot, and it was like, oh god, it was great. I need better Renaissance fairs here in Omaha. There aren't any, or there? No, we we have one, but it's. Eh. Well, the fair started in L.A. in a backyard, and then moved to eventually Paramount Ranch, which is where. In the back part of Paramount Ranch, they shot a lot of things, including Lone Ranger and other Western shows. Um, the Western part of Paramount Ranch was later Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, but there are earlier Western shows that were shot there. Um, we're just down the freeway from Sherwood Lake, which was called Sherwood Lake because Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood was shot there. Um, and right on the other side of the hill from Paramount Ranch was where the MASH unit was shot. So the the hills that we see at the Renaissance Fair was where the helicopter comes over. The, the opening scene hills. Where suicide is painless. Um, so we were, it, so you can picture the how beautiful the land was. It was the land that is just inland from Malibu. And it was you get out of the car, the, you go over the hill, you can no longer see the cars parked. It was in Brigadoon. It was in a completely different land. And the Pattersons created that and the Northern Fair and the Dickens Fair and then a couple of fairs that were actual total failures that we worked at as well and eventually sold the rights or their kids sold the rights to a fair that came out of, I think, Minnesota. REM or REN, one of them is a rock group and one of them is the fair group. Um, and they opened up fairs all across the country. So the original concept of the Renaissance Fair that started in, in Southern and Northern California traveled all across the country. Um, and there are, I think, a few other producers too, but one that owns a lot of them. Interesting. And I think the Pattersons got back the rights to the Dickens Fair, but they don't even have the rights to the California Renaissance Fair in California. So that was some bad business on their part. 
because it's making a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. But I grew up there. That was that was that was school and learning how to perform on a wood platform outside with people yelling steak on a steak and parades going by and bells and horns and people screaming and to get an audience to pay attention to you without microphones, without spotlights, with three people on a huge stage and have them know where to look is it was a magic trick and we learned how to do it. And when I started doing film work, I had to learn how to bring that way down because I was playing to the back row in a forest and you don't need to do that when the camera's on your nose. So I had to really learn how to take it back. Oh yeah. (laughs) But learning how to have that kind of power on a stage and to keep an audience attention. And we did a lot of street theater as well. So we, we did street theater mostly in San Francisco at the cannery. You catch a crowd, you keep a crowd, you pass the hat, and then you go have dinner. Good times. I'm, I'm going to jump around your uh, credits here. You were in uh, Return of the $6 Million Man and the Bionic Woman. Yes. How fun was that? My dear friend and the man who hired me, Michael Sloan, who got me my SAG card, I was working in a restaurant as a performing waiter, and I had a house fire, and he showed up and said, do you have a SAG card? Let me." He wrote a letter. He did Sword of Justice, BJ and the Bear, The Master. He created The Equalizer, but one of his, not a hobby, but one thing that he seemed to like to do a lot is take shows that he loved from the 60s and bring them back together. So he did The Return of the Man from Uncle. He did... Um, and he had Patrick McGee, the Avengers, in his other shows. He would bring 60s big stars and put them in other stuff. And he loved Six Million Dollar Man. So he did Return of Six Million Dollar Man, and he did The Bionic Couple. So I got to work with both Lee Majors and Jamie. Is that her name? And then he did The Bionic Girl, which I got to play a waiter in. I had a very small part. But the thing that makes this interesting is the Bionic Girl was played by a newcomer, Sandra Bullock. And <laughs> she and I she and I hung out together because our names were both Sandy and this, we're this both no name actress who wasn't going anywhere. Not going anywhere at all, and I was gonna help her out. And we're both born July twenty sixth, and we were buddies on the set. I don't think she'll let me near her set now because she's so huge, but that was incredible. And being able to work with on, on Man From U.N.C.L.E., David McCollum and, and Robert Vaughn and these stars that I grew up with and to be able to be on the set with them um, to eventually answer your question, it was great. It was absolutely great because I am a big fan of television. I am a big fan of these people and to be, to be able to be part of the fantasy and the make-believe that they are um, is, is part of my dream growing up. I get to be part of the man from Uncle. That is so cool. Well, that's part of how I feel about uh, doing these interviews. You know, with the cast of Zubli Zoo and you and everybody else that I interview are huge parts of my childhood and just uh-huh. people I looked up to growing up. And it's just like this is the closest I'm going to get to actually working with these guys. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it's when it started, it was mind blowing. Well, I'm glad I I'm glad I can help you. I'm glad I can help you live your dream. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And now it's turned into, like, a dream come true. I mean, 
I, I, I couldn't ask for a better uh, run with these things. Well, good. I'm glad, and I and I'm and I'm really glad you like the show because because so do I. Um, if if you were a big giant fan of Return of the Man from Uncle, we wouldn't have a lot more to talk about than what we just did. It was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all I remember. <laughs> that, was, that it was really neat. It was also really cool on the return of. I mean, this he had me on a uh, Alfred Hitchcock, a new Alfred Hitchcock presents. Yep. Um, which had when he did the remakes, uh, it had at least five different twists. So there was absolutely halfway through the the story, it was going to twist at least five more times, and I I loved. Reading the script, I love being part of it. He also did the uh, Kung Fu: The Legend Continues, and I, I love David Carradine, and I loved the first Kung Fu series. Yes, absolutely. And the only reason I love the second one more is that I got paid on it, um, <laughs> and I, I got to be, I got to be on the show, which made me very fond of it. But being being on a set and looking over at Kane. And knowing that that's Kane is, oh my God, that's so great. So I, I remember I guess, sitting down with mom watching uh, Kung Fu. Oh God, I loved it. And also, I, I I never got to be on Wild Wild West, but I loved that show a lot too. And I loved Star Trek a lot, which getting to, getting to meet anybody from any part of any of those shows was quite a treat. But yeah, being being able to work with with David Carradine was in, incredibly cool. Um, and there's most of the cast of Kung Fu, the legend continues are Shakespearean actors from Canada um, that are also working at the, I guess it's called the globe up there as well. Um, so these are people that when they're not on the set, uh, Scott Wentworth, who played Kermit on the show, was this great mercenary who always wore green glasses. I saw him in an incredible production as Macbeth. I mean, he's, that's not an easy role and he did it absolutely beautifully but they were all stage actors. And when you work with stage actors, there's a different feel than working with people who are just TV or movie actors. There's a certain camaraderie and a certain less ego and more team play. I mean, everyone in the cast, if you're on a stage show, sometimes you're going to help someone change. Sometimes you're going to throw a prop at somebody. If your um, crew doesn't open up the curtain or turn on the light, no one's going to see you. So people have worked a lot of stage get that people that just do film and just do um tv they may not realize that the rest of the staff is important but scott wentworth first day i was on the set and they had already done the show four years so i was already starstruck at these people um he came up to me and he said welcome he said do you want any help with your line because he knew i had one line that day uh and we actually spent time with i think it's let's get him or uh, it was two two words, <laughs> and we spent at least fifteen minutes jokingly <laughs> working on every possible way to say two words. And it was it was really he made me feel at home and like I was part of the group, which is an amazing thing because they were already established, they were already stars on the show, and I was an LA actor and they were all Canadian actors, so they 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 had a whole reason not to like me, and it was. I was really well received, and that was a great experience too. Paul, oh, and then you got your own space adventures in Babylon Five. I got to be three different species on Babylon Five. Not even I, I got to sort of be a human, 
um, on an island, not an island, on, on a planet where all empaths and we're dying. And Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who I loved because he was in the FBI, and his wasn't his daughter in Beauty and the Beast? I think so. He was going to pull the plug on all of us. And he was standing over my bed and deciding how they're going to kill the entire um, outpost. So that was fun because between takes, I kept telling him I was feeling better and I'm, I want to go jogging and let me get up. And it was great. Uh, I don't want to die. I also, I was, I played, I forgot the name of our species and I apologize to all Babylon 5 fans. The blue headed people that Billy Moomy was a regular on the show. Um, we had blue, bald blue heads and our ears were lower on our heads and we answered to the Grey Council and Billy and I went to Hamilton High School together and I hadn't seen him in a long time. And that's name dropping because Billy Moomy was lost in space and also on three different Twilight Zones. He's the one that sent people to the cornfields. Um, so I saw him and he was in his blue makeup already. And I was in my, and we're both redheads. We both kind of look alike out of makeup. But I'm looking over at him getting touched up as I'm getting put into mine. And I went, Billy, it's Sandy Hamilton. He went, oh my God, you look just the same. I went, yeah, so do you. So we're obviously both lying to each other because neither of us were bald and had blue heads at high school. And I said, Billy, you got to help me with this. I know how to prepare for roles as a human being, but how do you prepare for this species? And he said, well, first of all, you're not going to be able to hear anything because the prosthetic covers your ear and we have fake ears much lower. So, so just know that when you're on the set, you're going to be deaf. You're going to have to like look at people's lips to figure out when your line is. And I said, well, then what do you do when you can't hear? He said, we do this hand gesture and we bow. And I, I, I speak ASL. So I knew that that hand gesture was female anatomy. And it's not something you usually would bow with. <laughs> um, so I said, really? You do this like triangle gesture and bow? He said, yes. If you can't hear it, buys you time. So I get up on the set and I'm working with Delenn, who is a, a star on the show, who apparently is becoming more human. And they sent me to try and get her back into the humorless blue-headed fold. So I'm threatening her with a message from the Grey Council. And she starts the scene and I hear them say action and she has her back to me. And I guess she said the line. But Billy was right. I couldn't hear a damn thing. I'm looking at this actress with her back to me. I'm glancing around and there's a lot of people in the crew who I guess are looking at me because it's my turn. So I lean sideways so I could be seen over her shoulder. And I do the ASL gesture for vagina and I bow. Um, and they kept the take. They kept it. Eventually, she turned around and we went on with the scene. But, I, but I'm really glad that Billy was there to help me because I did the entire scene with her, not knowing when it was her turn. I guess when she stopped talking and her mouth closed was the only way I knew that it was time my turn to speak. <laughs> and, I was, and, and my third Babylon 5, I played, I think it's the Narn, the giant lizard people. Um, I was a lizard captain 
who our ship was going way too close to the sun. So I was able to get my entire crew uh, transported to another ship so they would survive. But I ended up crashing into the sun and I died before the opening credits. And that was, that was sad because I thought I would have more to do in that episode. It was two and a half. It was the hardest makeup because, you know, I'm become a giant lizard person. So I'm two and a half hours getting into makeup and then the producer comes over and says, so are you ready for your contact lenses? And I thought he was joking. So I'm thinking, what more can I possibly have on me? And he gives me these half eyeball red contact lenses. So now I am totally a giant lizard who can't see. And he helps me into my chair. And I had a couple of lines at the beginning. And they ended up dubbing them with someone that sounded more like a lizard man. I don't know why I was in that episode. They could have put anybody in that makeup and put those contact lenses on and dubbed them. But I'm, <laughs> I, I'm glad. And, and I died before the credits. But I, I, otherwise, I would have only been in two parts, and I got to be in three. You sacrificed yourself so the crew could live. I, yes. The, the crew of Babylon 5 as well as the crew of my ship. I sacrificed. I left, I left the stage so that they could finish shooting the episode. It was very noble of me. That was so cool because the... The sets of Babylon 5 were permanent built sets in very unmarked warehouses in north in the north part of LA in the valley and it just looks like you know they're building or putting canned soup together or it's it's a packaging going on you walk into these doors and you're inside the many rooms of the the ship of Babylon 5 and and again as a kid Loving the fact that I get to do this, I was so jazzed. I was so jazzed to be able to to do that, to be in the makeup, to be part of it. Was there was one episode that Paul Williams, Paul Williams, who wrote "It Isn't Easy Being Green," you know that guy, um, and a lot of other songs, and wrote the music to Ishtar, um, was on the show, and he played the assistant to a dignitary from a planet that was so important that he doesn't the dignitary does not speak to people directly he speaks to to paul williams um telepathically and then paul williams says what the the dignitary is saying so the dignitary just stands there looking pompous and paul williams is the one that's communicating for him it was a really funny part and i got to go up to him in some, I don't know which species I was at the time, and tell him that I was one of three people that loved Ishtar. So that was, and if you haven't seen it, you should see it, and then you can join our club. I love Ishtar. Yeah, have, you, have you seen it? Yeah. Did you laugh? Yes. Okay, because this, this conversation will be over. <laughs> I, I, think this, I think the movie is absolutely hysterical. I think the fact that these two guys who are huge stars are playing total nebbish unknowns who can only get a job in Northern Africa and are being killed and are worried that they're never going to be able to work in Morocco again. I just, every part of that made me laugh. I just, <laughs> maybe, maybe because I was there. <laughs> it, it was a fun, it, it was fun. Yes. Good. Okay. Well, I, in, in representing you, I got to tell Paul Williams who wrote, the song Telling the Truth is Dangerous Business, that he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, it should... was really good. I mean, okay, good. Paul Williams is probably one of the greatest songwriters in the last 30 years. Yeah, he's 30, written 40 a years. lot of great songs, including the musical Fandom of the Paradise. But, you know, and, and It Isn't Easy Being Green is beautiful. Yeah. And he's written a lot of other stuff, too. That alone. Yes, that should be enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and that's a, that's a really good message that Kermit was trying to tell us. You think you've got it hard? It isn't easy being green. Yeah, try being green. Yeah. He also wrote Rainbow Connection, which is stunning. I say I think that's even more popular than about which is a which is saying why do people believe in magic? Why not? There might be something to it. We you know maybe we we should all spend an extra second wishing on a star. Yeah. You know, and and that's the Rainbow Connection. It's a beautiful song. Beautiful song. I admire him a lot. I didn't have to make it up. And if he looked into my, depending on which species I was, my slanty lizard eyes, or he'd know I was telling him the truth. (laughs) 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 I'm not sure which of my creatures was admiring his work. I think it was the blue head guy. I think that guy was the one who was walking around more. You've also had a pretty good run as a puppeteer. Yes, that was so lucky and blessed. I worked at with Cock and Feathers, the group I mentioned, at the Mayfair Music Hall in Santa Monica, <clears throat> which was, uh, it was a music hall, and it was started by Milt Larson, who also did the Magic Castle in Los Angeles and the Variety Arts Center. And we were, it was such a great show to be part of. Bernard Fox was our chairman. He played Dr. Bombay on Bewitched. So there was another television connection of a great celebrity. One of the people that came to see us actually came to see Marsha Wallace, the star of the show, was Van Snowden, who played H.R. Puffin Stuff on H.R. Puffin Stuff and had been working with Sid and Marty Croft forever. And he loved us and we became really good friends. And in 75, I went with another friend of mine, Scotty Smith, to work at the World of Sid and Marty Croft in Atlanta, uh, which was made at the Omni. It was an indoor amusement park that later became CNN when our, when our park closed. From there, Van called me in to work on um, Barbara Mandrell's show because they had a musical band on the show, uh, Truck Shackley and the Texas Critters, and the hands of each of the puppets really played their instrument. It was, it was clearly a Sid Croft idea. Um, so I was the hands of the piano playing puppet who was able to really play piano. I never puppeteered before in my life, but I did play piano. So I knew how to play piano. And I gestured when Louise or Elaine or Barbara talked to us. We went from that to a TV, a, a musical called Broadway Baby. Sid and Marty Croft did a Broadway show. I'd gotten a little bit better by that point, but by the time we actually got the show on stage, I had figured out where hands don't go and where they do go. Um, <laughs> Normally you figured that out like, as a kid. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really easy to put your hand where it's comfortable as a puppeteer, and then you look on the monitor and realize you're doing some incredibly impossible um, gyration that a hand could, an arm could never fit in. Yeah. So actually realizing that you have to try and make it look real. Um, 
by the time I got, and this is all on Sid Marty Croft, by the time I got to DC Follies, I pretty much knew what I was doing and was able to start doing nuance and comedy. And all the way through this, Van Snowden was an, not only an incredible puppeteer and an incredible friend, um, but his comedy timing uh, was spectacular. And on DC Follies, I got to play, among others, Gerald Ford, who had trouble with big bowls of popcorn. He would constantly spill popcorn when he was talking. But I also got to be George Burns, who was really understated and did really subtle work with his cigar. Um, but also through Van, I got to be on Beetlejuice and Child's Play. Uh, what did you do on Sabrina? On, on Sabrina, I was on the pilot and first episode. Uh, the pilot was directed by Robbie Benson, who was the voice of Beast in Beauty and the Beast and was in 5,000 TV shows and movies before that. And he was, a, he was a very dear person and a great person to work with because everybody was coming up to me with an opinion of how the cat should move. I felt pretty, there was three of us working the cat, but I was doing head turns and body, and I was trying to get the cat to lick himself and to be a cat until he said a line, and then obviously he would, his mouth would move and he would talk. Um, and at one point, Mary, the, the star's mother, came up to me and said, I just want you to know that I'm the, the mother of, of the star, and I'm one of the producers, and I have a cat. So when I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this because I know how the cat's supposed to move. And I just wanted to talk to you about how the cat's supposed to move. And I said, oh, good. I'm so glad you're here. So I have a question. When your cat jumps up on the table and tells a joke, does he lick himself right away or does he wait for a reaction? <laughs> and I was, not, I was not beloved on that set because I was, people were lining up to tell me how to make the cat work. I'm like, this is a talking cat. This isn't this your is, normal cat. No, this is not a normal cat. And we got to the first episode and we had, and, and Robbie told me, he said, you are not going to have any fun on this set because everyone's going to want to change how your cat's working. They think that they all have the answer. And the cat had limited movement. It was the electron, the movement in it was the mechanism was a little bit jumpy. So I tried to limit it so that it didn't come off like a electronic cat. I tried to make it move smoothly, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, at one point I'm under a, chair and the cat is looking at sabrina who's sitting on the bed and the director uh says cut 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 who's under that chair the cat's supposed to be looking right at her why who is doing that and i come out and i said i'm sorry it, it was me would you do me a favor would you get under there and show me exactly where you want the head placed and i'll i'll do that because i i want to make sure i get it right and he crawled under there and he looked at the monitor and he put the head and he came out and I said, are you sure? And he goes, yeah. And the head was looking up towards the ceiling. It was just totally wrong. And I said, don't talk to me like that again. <laughs> and, and, and I quit the show after that episode because I was one of the stars of a TV show called Lost on Earth. It was such a great show that I don't remember it. Um, that, that Quincy, that, um, uh, Quincy Jones was the producer. Um, it was 
Patrick Leahy or John Leahy was it was a Dan Leahy was a was the star. It was a great show. We got to do our own voices. It was really funny, and it was canceled after six episodes. Um, for a while, I was on two shows, and I thought I don't need stupid Sabrina the Teenage Witch with everybody telling me how to work a cat. I can be Bran on Lost on Earth, and I can have a series go forever. So if you wanted to ask me where I could go back in time and what I would have done differently, I would have kissed major butt on Sabrina the Teenage Witch because their show went 10 years and their second season was shot in Italy and I wasn't on it because I was indignant about how I was spoken to. So I learned an awful lot. Yeah, but you probably would have hated it. Yeah, I would have hated it. And when they said, cut, I could be in Italy. I mean, yeah, it was, I honestly don't know how I would have done it differently because I take what I do seriously. I really do want to hear direction, but from the director. And when someone else comes up to me, I mean, we had a lot of people from the network saying how they thought the cat should, people were lining up to tell me how the cat should work. And I really thought I was, not only was I making it look normal, I was making the tail flap like a cat because guess what? I had a cat. I actually knew what cats look like. I really wanted it to be right. Um, so I felt bad that that I annoyed people there. And I also felt bad that I picked the wrong show to, <laughs> to, put, my, to put all of my cards in. Before we dive into the uh, meat and potatoes of the interview, I want to let everybody know if you uh, want to hear more about uh, Sandy's puppet career, be on the lookout for uh, the uh, Child's Play episode on my other podcast, Moose's Monster Mash, uh, when it becomes available at electronicmediacollective.com. Let's dive into it, shall we? You were Builder Beaver it. on Zubilee Zoo. Yes, I am. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't I was supposed to be Builder Beaver on Zubilee Zoo. I was supposed to be Bravo Fox. Just Let's just start there, full disclosure. Uh, I, I was at a third audition for Bravo Fox, and they at first I auditioned as W.C. Fields doing the voice, and then Cyril Richard, who was um, uh, Captain Hook in Peter Pan, and Gary Schwartz, who I actually knew from before this, came in with his partner, Caleb, who was auditioning for Builder Beaver, and Gary came in and did a stunning Edwin and beat me out for the part of Bravo Fox, which I thought absolutely should be mine because I play music and I'm an actor and it would have just been perfect for me. Um, my friend, Michael Sheen, who got me, called me up and said, they're having this audition for this thing. You'd be perfect for it. It's animals that move and sing and dance. And he was auditioning and got the part of Builder Beaver. And Two days after I was already moaning the fact that my life is over and I'm not going to be on the show, I got a call from the casting director saying, we're replacing Builder Beaver. Would you be interested in auditioning for that? So I called Michael Sheen. I said, I, what's going on? I don't want to be the all about Eve of the animal community. What, why are you, are you quitting? Did they fire you? And he said, I really, I hated the tale. I hated the costume. And I just, I'm a voice actor. He did Bam Bam on Flintstones and a lot of other things. He really didn't like the physical comedy and having to wear all that fur. And he said, no, no, you have my blessing. Go and audition. So I, I auditioned for Bill, which they were, they said out loud in the audition, you've been such a big character 
as Bravo, we don't think, honestly, you're going to be able to pull this off. And I guess I pulled, I pulled it off and I proved them wrong because somewhere inside this boisterous second best Bravo person that I am um, is someone who actually is very serious and gentle and caring and loving. And every part of Builder Beaver, the very best part of that character was able to come out in me in, in that show. I was so lucky that I didn't get to be Bravo Fox. I'm so glad Gary got that part. And I am so proud that I got to be Bill Beaver on the show. And so thank you, Michael Sheen, for hating the tale. Thank you, Gary, for doing a great Edwin. And thank you, everybody, for giving me a chance because it's been a perfect part for me. So, yeah, the way the casting worked out, I, I don't think it could have worked out any better. Yeah, when I didn't get the part, for a moment, Ken Page was going to be Van Gogh Lion, uh, who is an incredible stage performer. Uh, he was in Cats. Uh, he was Pat Swaller in Eight Misbehaving on Broadway. Big, giant, big voice, happy sort of singer. Um, but apparently he wanted second billing to Ben Vereen, which in a real adult Broadway show, he would get that because Ben Vereen, Ken Page, they're both pretty I mean, Ben Vereen wins, but Ken Page has still done a number of Broadway shows and deserved second billing. Unfortunately, they had written the song and Bill DeBeaver got second billing in the song because I guess it rhymed better. So he quit before they shot started shooting. And thank God they brought in Van Gogh, Van Gogh Lion. They brought in Forrest Gardner, who is a Broadway star in his own right. He was in Sophisticated Ladies and he was in... Um, I thought he was in Starlight Express, but he was in Jesus Christ Superstar and also later toured with Temptations and the Pips. And so we were very lucky to have him. So Van Gogh Lion was almost the same guy who voices Oogie Boogie in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, really? That's Ken Page? Yeah. Yeah. Holy crap. You're joking. You're joking. I can't believe my ears. Yeah, no, Ken, Ken Page's big giant voice like that. Yeah, that's him. Oh, yeah, that's, wow. That's crazy. And if you, if you look him up, it would have been a different look because he's six something, like 300 pounds. Yeah, he'd have big been a big giant lion. guy. Big giant lion and a lot of personality. Um, and they got, well, I mean, Forrest was six foot some, but, you know, much smaller than Ken was. Um, yeah. And, and when I was at the audition and I got to meet him, I got to, I'm starstruck. I get up to people who I, I'm starstruck for and I'm starstruck. There are other people who I've met in show business who I'm really not that impressed by. And they, and then they don't seem quite as nice as I'd hoped they were, but Ken Page, I saw Abe Misbehaving three times at the Aquarius Theater in L.A. He's spectacular. He was absolutely spectacular. And we were so lucky not to have him in Zoobly Zoo. I mean, <laughs> all of that's true. All of that's true. That sounds so because, weird to say, but I, I understand what you mean. You know, it's because he got to go do other things. and Yeah, we got to enjoy his work on so many other things. Yeah. And, and he was... Definitely the cast of Amos Behaven was very much ensemble, and he would have been good in ensemble work with this. But the whole, the energy and the power that he would have brought to Van Gogh Lion was replaced by a gentleness and a heart that Forrest brought that no, no one wrote anywhere. 
but Forrest brought that onto the, onto the set because he was an artist. He was an artist who really loved the beauty of things and the colors of things. And I don't... So more of a meek lion. He was a gentle, yes. He, was, they was, he wasn't going to attack you. He was a gentle lion, a gentle beast. Um, and yet incredibly noble and, you know, not a weak lion, a meek lion. I mean, it's slightly different. Um, but we, we definitely, we definitely won out with all of that. The fact that, that Gary got to be Bravo, the fact that he got to be the lion and I got to be Bill worked out so great for everybody. And, and right away we knew that it did because I came on the set and they were telling me about how the guy who played the beaver before wasn't, he wasn't happy. He said, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if you knew this, but the guy that played beaver, he just really wasn't enjoying himself. And I said, before you go any further, I've known that guy for 14 years. And, and all the Zoopals are like, what? It's like all, all Builder Beavers hang out together? No, that's not. Yes, we all live in the same dam. We live in the same dam. Like, look up beavers. We, we're a communal group. It's, you can't build a dam as one beaver. You need a lot of beavers. But I, I knew Michael Sheen from the Renaissance Fair. He used to work at a dulcimer booth 100 years ago. And he's the reason I got to be on the show. So I, I, I said, I'm sorry he didn't like it, but I'm so glad he didn't like it um, because I did. And it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't for him. If you're used to doing voice work, if you're doing you know, character work for cartoons, this was a very, very different beast. These were people who were very physical. I mean, Gary was, was vaudeville juggling circus stunt. Uh, Karen was has experience in she met her her mark of 50 years doing west side story so beautiful singer beautiful dancer beautiful mover i mean obviously forrest and and, and michael are both incredible dancers and singers and michael sheen was in the midst of this going i don't do any of that um so he I, i'm glad he felt out of place and told him right away all right so i think we caught up so yes yeah, so now i'm on the set <laughs> yeah i just needed to get there in a really slow pace because you know what i'm builder beaver and everything is a long story for me <laughs> uh and yeah you were you, you were the town handyman you were the set yes. builder for bravo and yes and it was all very interesting things that were not interesting for other people were incredibly interesting to me like that last story i find fascinating <laughs> i do too and it's... thank you thank you and you know you've heard my other Zubal interviews, and I, as I've mentioned on theirs, you know, I've, at different points in my life, I've been, you know, I, I've identified with different uh, Zubals. In high school, I was really big into set design. I still am, actually. Uh -huh. uh, I use it a lot around Halloween and do my yard up pretty good. And uh, you know, and I like tinkering around with things and stuff like that. So the you know the inner builder beaver comes out, just get to play around. And it's just like. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to think that something from your childhood uh, shows up and you, you could channel it later. Oh, I, I would pull the spirit of Builder Beaver when I was building a fence uh, in a yard or trying to fix something or anything that came from Ikea. I would just start humming my theme song. Wait, I can do this. All right, so you take A and go to B, and B goes to because I wait. I know I'm in there. I know I can figure this out. I know it wasn't a joke. Um, one thing that I loved about 
Bill, the bigger picture about Bill was he really did want to fix things. If there was a problem between people, he thought by using the same logical skills that he used to make the time and space machine, said, well, if you just talk to her like this and you did that, why doesn't that work? And oftentimes that did work. But the secret and the magic of Zoobly Zoo was sometimes you needed the aesthetics and the beauty of a Van Gogh lion to come in and say, well, maybe if we just spend an extra second listening or it just, so that's what made our show also incredible for us is that there was no one right way and no one, no, no one right voice for no, how things should be done. everybody worked together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. It, it made, it, it was very much a community. And I also love that, and it was written this way, and also we kept we kept it this way when we were do table reads. If someone asked, "Well, Bill, how does this work?" You know how some characters go, "Well, I don't have time to explain this to you," and there's no way you're going to know this. And Bill never did that. Bill was delighted to say, "Oh, well, let me tell you. You take this and the nunchuck, and you turn it over to the to the slop, and then again, and that's when you push this button, and the whole thing works right." And was really thrilled when someone was interested in what he was doing, as we all are. So there was a lesson there that people really do want to share what they do and they want to be able to share what they know with other people. That, that was a constant message all the way through our show. Well, and one of the really cool things about Bill was he was a crossover character. I mean, you had Van Gogh, who was an artist, was that who was a musician, uh, Bravo, who was an actor. I mean, Lookout was the outdoorsman. Uh, Takatu was, you know, the newspaper reporter, the writer. Well, yeah. with Builder Beaver, he was kind of the nerdy one in the group and <laughs> the shop class guy. So in like yeah. today's world, he'd be the guy in the computer lab and taking shop. Yeah, I'm the tech guy. Yeah. You know, so it, many people could identify with that one character, you know, it. It, that was one of the coolest things about your character was it wasn't, I mean, even like, you know, even with the explanations, like you, you had kind of that uh, Simon from the Chipmunks quality where, yeah, you explain everything, etc. Right. But you also were hands on and you you, uh, you didn't mind getting down and dirty. That sound, that came out different than I thought that sounded in my head. No, I understood. Um, and and he would, there would be shows on Bravo stage where they're working on a scene and Bill comes to the back and is fixing something and then goes and fixes something else and goes all set Bravo and leaves the set and leaves the scene. Is not part of the show they're doing, but had to fix something on the set. Uh, I, I wander into things sometimes and fix things and leave without explaining what or why. Um, and that was, it, it seemed like I had a real purpose. <laughs> it seemed like if things broke, I, I could fix them. Um, uh, and from a techie point of view, we had to do that one show in high school. We had this stair banister on a show we were putting on break mid show. Oh my God. And you know, there were still scenes where people were going to be coming down the stairs and it, it wasn't going to be safe. So a couple of us put on uh, some jumpsuits that we had sitting in the back and, you know, wrote, uh, like, Acme Repair or something on a piece of paper, stuck it to our backs. <laughs> you know, came knocking on the door. And 
it's like, yeah, we're here to fix your banister. You know, and they're like, <laughs> oh, it's over there. And, you know, then we'll just go over and fix it really fast. And off we went and then fixed it later after the show was done. But, yeah, that's great. that stuff happens. And yeah, it's and, crazy and to it, think about that it got included into a show. Yeah, we had my, my part was not necessarily and it wasn't. I, it wasn't ego driven. I I knew my job was to fix stuff, and I really loved doing that. I mean, the thing that that made that interesting because I wasn't a big fan of fixing and repair, and and I liked I liked wood shop because it, you can burn wood and stuff. And <laughs> but I, I was never a big fan of tools before Bill, but I really got into the fact that something is a a problem needs to be solved. Something there's a whole bunch of parts here, and if you put it together, it becomes one thing that works and is functional. And somewhere in there, Bill taught me that that's really cool. So I, I learned it from him rather than bringing it to him. I figured I figured out that there is a a, no, a a nobility and a purpose in fixing things and putting things together. Oh yeah. And and yeah, so I I I love doing that, and I love I love that, and it it goes to being appreciated and being um, needed by the people in your community. I love the people ask Bill for help for things. I love that. And I love being able to do that. Um, in fact, there's an episode or two where I want to help out and people are going, Bill, you've got to calm down. Let's go fishing. I mean, look, I was trying to convince me to go fishing and I, I tried to fix the fishing rod to make it easier to, because that's, that's me relaxing is doing what I love to do. So we got to learn that for you, relaxing is, is fishing. For me, relaxing is building a rod. They're different things and they're both fine. We learned a lot of it. They're different things and they're both fine. Seem to be part of many, many of our shows. Well, and that's, and you're right. It, what, what relaxes one person might not relax the next person. Me, for exa example, for me, it depends on the mood I'm in and how much I need to relax. Right. Fishing relaxes me to an extent until it goes south and I'm sunburnt and uh -huh. Uh -huh. I haven't caught anything. Uh, now, most times I don't mind just sitting out on the lake because I like watching the water. Right. And I like the serenity of knowing being around. This right here, this is relaxing to me. Uh-huh. You know, interviewing people, getting to hear their stories, and getting to learn about things that you can't you can't find on the internet. That, that that's a nice you know cool chill way to just kick back and relax. It's not just it's not just the, the word not just relaxing, but also doing what you love to do. Yeah, and having having a having different people loving different things. I mean, Van Gogh loved to paint. I love to build things, but I really did love doing that. I mean, it was for it was a lesson for Lookout to find out well, how can you possibly be fixing and working on stuff all the time You mu that you must be exhausted. You need to do something else. And what we don't realize is what we think is right for us may not be right for somebody else. So we look at somebody going, well, that can't be true. You must be exhausted. You need to do this instead when they're totally happy doing what they're doing. So um, among our many nuanced lessons of the show is, no, I'm fine. I like building stuff. I don't like fishing. And then that's okay that you do. That's, that's fine. We have a song for that. <laughs> that we're different people and we love different stuff.
I like to build, yeah. you like to fish, but we're still yeah, friends. And that's that's many of our messages and many of our themes. And that's when we used to tour, I used to have kids come up to me and their parents would say that their children didn't usually come up and talk to people, but they would come up and talk to Bill because Bill was actually a very gentle soul. And I'm, I'm so glad that I am him. And they would tell me that they were working and they were loners and they really felt that they were functional when they were making something, when they were building something. And they wanted to share that with me. And I told them, well, that's absolutely fine. Not everybody needs to be in the center of the stage yelling out their names. Some people are really happy making things work. And that that was a very important message. You don't have you don't have to be yelling or screaming. You can actually be building and fixing something. And so that was it. I, I was happy that people were getting that. Yeah, you know we've mentioned him a couple times, uh, and I know you were you know good friends with him. Uh, let's talk about Forrest for a minute. Okay. Who you know sadly isn't with us anymore. Uh, what was he like? on and off the set um he was one of my favorite people that i've ever worked with i'm sorry i just got choked up um he was a huge heart and wiser than his years than one person can be and had the talent of 20 people and and was attractive and he was the kind of person you want to hate or be jealous of but he was so kind and so supportive and so loving, and it sounds like I'm making this up, but there really was a person that was that like that, and it was Forrest Gardner. Um, and he and I did a lot of shows together and wrote scripts for our live shows, and every second working with him was a joy. Um, and the bear and the lion and I would go to children's hospitals in every city that we performed in, and not because it was an obligation, but for the three of us, it was something that gave was a blessing for us to go and meet these kids that were so much braver than we will ever be. Um, and that to, going to the children's hospitals, that represents Forrest to me as much as anything else. Um, and there were times that I would be frustrated about something, and he was absolutely the person to talk to and can just bring me back to a focus and a center. Um, and I thought he was immortal. I just, I, I absolutely could not accept you have, you know, you have people that you know in your life that you know will always be there for you. And I always knew he would always be there for me. And it's just, it's heartbreaking that he's not. Um, but I, I absolutely adored that man. And I miss him every single day. You're choking me up. Uh, <laughs> he was absolutely, he was absolutely the best. And, you know, I, I know we've, we've all shared different stories. Like, you know, we had a recent zoom and some of the cast were talking about how difficult the shoot was. It, it, for me, it wasn't difficult. In fact, the opposite, I had a lot of scenes with the bear and I had a lot of scenes with the lion. And every time I got to be in a scene with that guy, it was, it was living the dream. It was, it was heaven sent. You get to look over in the eyes of this guy who is totally open, totally out of focus so full of talent and just to have the honor to work with this guy. I mean, I, if, if I sound like I'm gushing, I'm gushing. I am. Um, his family asked me to, to give the eulogy at his funeral. And um, I, I, 
I mentioned in the eulogy that when you give a eulogy for someone, it's it's an honor, of course, and it's two parts. One part is how much you love this person and all of the reasons why you love this person. And I had no trouble going on about that forever. And the second part is how we are all supposed to cope now without him. And I said, I am woefully unable to supply that information to you because I have no idea how we're going to survive our lives without Forrest Gardner, without Van Gogh Lion. I have no idea. Um, I wish I could be more positive and helpful and tell you he's in a place in my heart, but I have not accepted him being gone. And I don't know, I don't know how to do it. And it's, I still, I go through moments of what, how can, how can it possibly be that he's not here? How can that possibly be? Because he was so much a part of my life. And I met him on the set of Zubilee Zoo. Uh, a, a friendship form that was that tight and that real from our set, which was that tight and that real. But it was quite an honor. And I wish, I wish for your sake that you had a chance to meet him because he was probably was the best among us. He was so good and funny. I know Michael said this too, but it's true. He was very funny. So that is one uh, interview that I really wish I could have had a chance to, and not even for interview's sake, just to sit down and talk to him. Because I know uh, whenever he came on screen, you know, I lit up and yeah. my friends lit up. And even for five minutes, it would have been fun to just sit down and chat with him. He was a spectacular dancer, a spectacular singer, and there was not an ounce of ego in either of those. He was... He could hit, he could kick his ear, and he was interested in what you were doing. He choreographed my ballet sequence in Tacarella. I said to him, I said, well, I don't need to tell you this, that I'm not nearly the dancer you are <laughs> ever. Um, but I want her, I want the fairy godmother to look like, if I could dance this well, it's being graceful. I, I want every step to look like a, if a good dancer did this, it would be beautiful. And I'm just not good at it. And he choreographed, if you ever see Tacarilla again and see my ballet dance, it is a very dainty, sweet ballet dance done by a very, very large, clunky beaver in a dress. Um, and But Forrest heard me and did exactly what I asked him to. On a, On one of our tours, we did a dance machine where we put at least eight different move, music styles like river dance into tap into you know, rock into some and just we we both got stuck in the dance machine and did all these different dance styles and it was van Gogh lion and bill the beaver doing it together and one of us is so much better as a dancer than the other one is I don't want to give it away, but it was him. Now that's a video I'd like to see. Oh God, I, I don't. Well, I know there's still pictures, but it was such a treat for him. He was like, I, and I've heard that Gene Kelly did this when Gene Kelly would choreograph people working with him. Very few people could dance as well as Gene Kelly. Maybe Fred Astaire, but when he was dancing with Frank Sinatra, he would, or Judy Garland, he would bring the choreography down so both of them looked like they were shining. Both of them looked like they were doing good rather than a great dancer holding back. And that's exactly what Forrest did when we worked together. He gave me 
stuff that was really hard for me that I know he could do in a second, and he didn't do one step to upstage me or make me look bad. And we only did stuff that we could both look good at. And that's that's who he was. He was he was that good a guy and a professional performer. And a, a joy, absolute joy. And he loved the kids. He loved the, the Zubaroos that watched Zubali Zoo. He adored every opportunity, as I did, to after the shows, even though we're in 98 degrees in Atlanta in the summer, to get out there and spend as much time as the kids needed, hugging and talking and telling stories. He loved doing that. And so did the bear. And we'd be doing it still. So not a syllable do I say about this man that isn't exemplary. He was he was absolutely he was perfect to work with and perfect to tour with. And I'm so lucky to be able to have called him my friend. And it sounds like you guys had a remarkable one of a kind true friendship and those kinds of friendships are rare oh yeah 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 it was we we hit it off <laughs> and and you know when you you can tell back in the shoot when bill and van gogh are together that they really like each other you could just really you could tell our characters liked each other we did a a see a, a an episode was called trading places and the episode and we already were friends and it's it started with he and i arguing that he could build better than i could that that building is stupid and i said oh yeah i think painting is stupid and we switch places and we find out no it's not that easy uh, and we immediately changed the premise to a game a fun game yeah, you know what? I bet I could paint something. Really? You think so? I think I could build something. Okay, let's do it. And at the end, I made this horrible painting that I think was birds on cotton or something. And his uh, tub was square and was falling apart. And we ended up helping each other make them work. And at the end, we each took credit for uh, it in Bravo show. They said, and the, the, the backdrop was painted by Builder Beaver, and the tub was made by our own Van Gogh Lion. And we were really proud of our work. And we never fought. We didn't fight our way through that. We did it as friends. Because there was a, there's a message there. You can actually compete with your friends and not fight with them and not make them. You don't have to make your friend wrong to be right. A lot of messages. Oh, and, yeah. and it was, it was, it was effortless to share that when your friend is Van Gogh Lion. You know, you mentioned it a couple minutes ago. We just recently did a uh, Zubli Zoom. Yes, we did. <laughs> which had a uh, resounding support from the fans. Yes, it did. Uh, I think at one point there were a hundred people in the Zoom with a few people waiting outside. Huh. That was fun. Um, yes. A little hectic. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a lot of people trying to talk at the same time in the cast and also in the in the fan base. Um, I think were we to do it again, it would really benefit us to come up with a structure and to follow that structure. I think this time we got half of that right. We came up with a structure of which uh, you and Billy were going to get the questions to us. Um, and then we didn't follow through. And I think some of that was a bit of the enthusiasm of our fans. I think a couple of our characters 
in our cast had different ideas of how to do things. And I don't know if while we're doing it is a good time to change the course. So if we did it again, I think we should probably trust our instincts and go with a, a more of a structure than we did this time. But that all said, it was, it was great to connect with the people that grew up loving our show. Um, I really appreciated that. I, I hope that we didn't give the impression. I mean, I, I know that Louise and I think Gary was saying it's a little bit that how difficult the shoot was. I, I don't want to sound weird to, to say it wasn't, but it wasn't. Um, we didn't show up at three in the morning and have our noses painted on our face and with, you know, melted with heat and we didn't eat and drink. I mean, it was, they were long shoot days, but I've done a lot of TV shows. It wasn't, and I, I was on Babylon 5. I was a lizard that dies in the opening credit. It's, it wasn't harder than other shows that involve makeup. And in some ways, it was easier because we got to work with an incredible cast. So I, I kind of, it became easy for us as a cast to whine about how hard it was, but I don't think that was true. And I wish, if people didn't get that, I wish I had spoken up a little more in Zoom and mentioned that. I also, I personally don't think that we should be sharing our outtake reels um, to the fans ever. I think that we created a magic world in Zoobly Zoo and, and I don't think it's necessary to let them know that between takes we were goofing around. I think they can probably figure out we did. Um, but we, we goofed around and had fun on camera, and that's what I think we should be sharing. So that that disappointed me a little bit. But there was enough there that didn't disappoint me that I really I was glad to see the cast and glad to see that people still are interested in the show. I'd say there, there were plenty of people interested, and there were a lot of good questions came in, and boy that floodgate when that door opened the floodgates opened it's like we went from one question to like we just got overwhelmed with questions yeah i i didn't see what everybody was reading because i was you know paying attention to faces and reactions and things but yeah we got some good questions i i question and and gary if you're listening i'm calling you out on this someone really asked you to do the voices of your video games i don't think so <laughs> i think he went i'm gonna ask myself a question gary do the other voices you do <laughs> i just don't i don't think that was a real question i think he wrote that himself but, but but that is so what bravo would do here's a good question bravo would you do all of your imitations for us okay thank you of course i will <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I was thinking, oh, here's a question for me. Sandy, would you play the piano now? Okay, sure I will. Thanks. But I, I didn't. <laughs> so this has been fun. Yes. Where can uh, fans find you if they want to look you up on like social media or anything? Um, I am. I have a webpage, sandygrin.com, S-A-N-D-E-Y-G-R-I-N-N.com that gets you right to my email so you can write me. Um, unfortunately I haven't gotten past the first page in the resume. So if anybody is really good at fixing web pages, if you are <laughs> talk to me after this podcast, cause I'd like to get much further than the first page that says work in progress. 
I'm also on Facebook as Sandy Grin, but you can friend me on, on Facebook. Just let me know who you are because I'd like to know who I'm friending. And that's it. I don't do Twitter and I don't pin anything. Um, and that's just because I'm desperately holding on to the last century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I am, I am a presence on Facebook and, and I am reachable. Well, folks, you know where to find him. <laughs> and you can find me along with other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. Sandy, it has been a blast uh, chatting with you today. Moose, it was mutual. That's not easy to say. Too many M's. <laughs> it, it was it was my pleasure as well. Listen, guys, a lot of good podcasts out there, and unless you heard it here, probably just a load of bullspit. <laughs> Until next time, take her easy. Ooh-wee. That sure was some bullspit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you just help. Be sure to tune in next time. Uh, we went to a children's hospital. I think it was in Philadelphia, and I just this this symbolizes how incredibly important Zubli Zoo is to me and to other people, and and I would hope that more people would get this. Um, we're, we're in intensive care. I'm coming around a corner, and this mother is crying in a hallway, outside a glass, floor to ceiling glass win, uh, room, and she sees me. And she grabs me and says, you've got to go in there and talk to my daughter. She's dying. And I'm going to mention this a couple of times during this because you're going to forget. I'm Builder Beaver. I'm dressed as Builder Beaver. I am not a doctor. I am not the actor. I am a giant beaver that just came around the corner. And she said, you've got to talk to my daughter. She's dying. So she sent me in there. I, I go in there. I look. There's two doctors at the head of the bed. They sort of shrug like there's nothing, okay. well, there's nothing nothing else to do. You might as well talk to her. I look down, and she's on more of a raised gurney than a bed. Um, and she's maybe seven, eight years old, but incredibly small, incredibly fragile. And I lean over, and I talk to her, and I say, you know, you're, it's clear that your mother's very sad, and she loves you very, very much. And um, I... I know that you're in a lot of pain and you're very sick, but I want you to know that it's okay for you to go. You can go if you need to go. Your mom doesn't want you to stay here if you're going to be sick and hurt. She wants you to be okay, and it's okay for you to go. Um, and the little girl opened her eyes, and her eyes were milky. I mean, I just got her. I can draw this. And she smiled, and she died. The little girl died. And the mom, time stopped for a second, and then the mom screamed. And I thought, oh, maybe that's not what she wanted me to do. I go, <laughs> maybe I did that completely wrong. Maybe I was supposed to cure her or something. So um, the doctors are leaning over the girl. I start backing out of the room. Uh, the mom is sobbing hysterically. She follows me out into the hall again, and she hugs me, and she thanks me. And I said, you're welcome, and I'm shell-shocked. 
and I go back around the corner and I walk out to our van and I meet up with the bear and the lion and Susan <laughs> Doyle, who is in charge of all of our tours and our, our shows. And we get in the car and we're all, everyone's really excited and happy. And Michael's talking about this guy that his arm broken in like 30 places and he's going to be throwing a ball again. And, and Van Gogh was talking about this girl that sang to him. And I guess they realized after a while that I wasn't talking at all. Because uh, that's so rare, I guess. And they looked over and they said, what, what's going on, Bill? And I just started sobbing. I could not stop crying. I could not begin to tell them for a long time what had just happened, that some mother trusted me with sending their daughter away, letting her daughter pass away. And, and, and I was Builder Beaver doing that. I wasn't... I don't know that as Sandy, I could have done anything close to that. No, that brave, that noble, that egoless. I don't, I just know that as Bill, I looked at her, I looked at the child and I knew what I had to tell the child and the child was pleased and could go. 